0: Many of you were here on Friday when we gathered to think deeply about the death of Jesus. We were reading in the book of Luke, and we're going to continue in the book of Luke this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We'll be reading verses 13 to 35. If you're here with us and you don't have a Bible, you can take the Bible in the rack in front of you that looks like this. That's where it's found on page 885, Luke 24. I also want to say, if you don't have a Bible, or maybe uh, the the Bible you have is an older version that's hard for you to understand, you are welcome to take this book home with you as our gift to you. So there's even a little note in the front that gives you permission to take this Bible so you're not stealing, okay? So we want everyone to have a Bible so they can read these truths for themselves. So we're in Luke chapter 24. I'm going to be reading verses 13 to 35. We say at our church that the most important thing you hear is the word of God read. So we do stand for the reading of God's word, and I invite you to do that with me. Luke twenty four thirteen to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, them named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we gather this morning full of joy because the tomb's empty full of joy because we know in our own hearts the crud that's there in our own lives the brokenness that's there and we need we need the hope of the resurrection that this world is not all there is that there has been something true that's been done about it and so we pray that you would take this service and inject us with the hope we need by your spirit use your word to communicate to us this morning and help me to do that well Help me to hear well as as well. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible provides us with four separate accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And each one was written with a particular goal in mind. So, for example, John's gospel account is written to prove that Jesus was the Messiah so that by believing that, we could have eternal life. Or Mark wrote his gospel to clarify the, essentially, the essentials of the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. Or you could think of the book of Matthew, which we studied a couple of years ago, that was written to equip his people to be disciple makers. But this Easter, we've been in the book of Luke. Why did Luke write his gospel? Look back at the very beginning, because Luke tells us right out of the gate. Look at Luke chapter 1, it's on page 855. We're going to look at the first four verses. He tells us right out of the gate why he's writing. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And listen to this. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why did he write? because he wanted most excellent Theophilus to have certainty concerning the things he was taught about Jesus. So Luke, the physician, writes his carefully researched, orderly account so that Theophilus can be certain about what he believes. In other words, Luke is a book designed to give concrete, reliable evidence for the Christian faith, and in so doing, it's meant to strengthen our faith. Now, that's important to keep in mind. Because even though it's Easter morning and the church is packed, there are many of us here struggling with faith. Maybe you don't believe at all and you are more or less dragged here by someone you love. Maybe, maybe you don't believe but you're curious. You thought, I'm going to come and learn a bit more. Or maybe we believe, but we find that our faith wavers at times. It fluctuates. It's a a feeble faith. If any of those describe you, Luke's gospel is for you. God inspired it for you. And so it's not surprising that when Luke tells about the resurrection, there's one story that he tells that's more extended than any other story he tells, and he's the only gospel writer who tells it. And it's the story of two doubters. Now by the end of the story, these two doubters have their hearts ablaze with faith. They're rushing to share the good news with others. But the surprising part of Luke's story And I believe the most compelling is what causes the transformation. What causes those whose hearts are slow to believe to become people whose hearts burn with belief? That's the surprising part. So let's dig in to learn the answer. As we heard in our Good Friday reading, innocent Jesus was mocked treated truly, and brutally died on a Roman cross. After he breathes his last, he's truly dead, he's buried, and sits in a tomb Friday, Saturday, into Sunday morning. Sunday morning, some women show up with spices and ointments to cover the stench of Jesus' corpse. And they discover he's not there. And two angels tell the women that he's risen just as he said he would. And the women run and spread the news. Peter and a few of the other disciples come to the tomb and confirm Jesus' body is missing. Now just after all this occurs, Luke changes the scene entirely to two followers of Jesus who are walking on a road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. One of them, we're later told, is Cleopas. We're not told the name of the other. Some speculate that it's his wife. They've heard all the news. And they're discussing all the news. But their discussion, we're told in verse 17, leaves them sad. You see, though they've heard it all, they don't believe in the resurrection. And you can't really blame them. It's actually pretty preposterous to think about a man rising from the dead. I mean, it's one thing to believe that someone was resuscitated. You know, they were dead maybe for a minute or two, then came back to life. I mean, that's hard for some of us to believe, but one might be able to get your mind around that. But But to believe that someone was declared dead by a Roman officer whose job it is to oversee a crucifixion that he was buried, laid in a tomb, and and dead for some 40 hours. To believe a person like that rose from the dead is, frankly, quite absurd. I mean, yes, this man was a man like no other man. Yes, he's a man so obviously fulfilled He's a man who so obviously fulfilled the prophetic predictions of a coming Messiah. A man whose teaching was unlike any that anyone ever heard. A man who had done many miracles himself while he was on earth. But still, people don't rise from the dead. It just isn't possible. Even if this Jesus had told his disciples ahead of time that he would die and rise from the dead, it still stretches the mind of belief. even though Peter and some of the women claimed to have seen an empty tomb, even though the women claimed to have seen angels who told them Jesus was alive, these two were not going to believe. I mean, people claim to see things all the time. Surely there could be some other explanation for what happened. Let's be logical about all this. And I say that I, I can't claim to know exactly how Cleopas and his companion were thinking. But we certainly can't be too hard on them for not believing. Maybe I say that just because I don't want to be hard on myself and knowing my own temperament and personality. I think that I would have probably been very much in their shoes, incredulous, trying to figure it all out, come up with some logical explanation that accounted for all the facts, but sad and despairing. How does Jesus respond to these two doubters? How does he respond to these skeptics? We're going to find out because in verse 15, Jesus arrives on the scene. How will he deal with them? How will he deal with my flagging faith? How will he deal with your flagging faith? Well, it's really quite surprising and profound. I mean, if I were him, I'd be like, I'm going to show up, bang, here I am, dun, dun, da, 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 da. Smack him over the head. You want to believe now? <laughs> Perhaps more in keeping with Jesus' character, he'd say something like, Do you see me now? Do you believe? But that's not what he does either. Instead, he gently enters into their thoughts into their conversation. And in order to do this, he keeps his identity hidden. And he asks them in verse 17 to be included in their conversation. What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? I love their response because it's so thick with irony. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Only one who didn't know? They say that to Jesus. But the greater irony is that it's actually them who didn't know. Now, sure, they know all the facts. But they failed to really know what had happened. You see, death had been defeated. Sin had been conquered. The eternal king, the Messiah, had risen from the dead. Israel's been redeemed. So then Jesus asks them the perfect question. What things, he says in verse 19. Remind them of the things that just happened so they can actually see. And they tell him they lay it all out. Jesus of Nazareth, they tell him, was a man mighty in both deed and word. So much so that they expected he was the long-awaited Christ or Messiah, the promised redeemer of Israel. Problem was, they say, the religious leaders had turned him over to the authorities, and so they'd had him crucified. They've got their facts right. They even know that the women and some of the other disciples had gone to the tomb and found it empty, They know the women had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. They know the facts, but they're still sad. They've heard the stories, but they still don't believe. Do you know how religions spread? Professor Alan Levinowitz from James Madison University has studied that question. And he's concluded that they spread through personal stories of religious encounters. So one person tells another of a life-transforming experience. The second person is compelled by that narrative. Then they embrace that new religious belief, experience some sort of transformation themselves, and then share it with another. And he's found that's true regardless of whether the story that they're sharing is actually legitimate. For example, there was a group of ancient Chinese monks who taught their followers to avoid eating grain and drinking, and they encouraged them to drink a certain concoction of minerals. And by doing it, they said, they could obtain perfect health, eternal youth, and even the ability to fly. I mean, of course, people don't fly. But for those who wanted to believe that the reality they were seeing wasn't all, a compelling narrative was formed by this, and eventually many bought into it. In fact, it was these monks that gave birth to modern Taoism. Religion spreads through compelling narratives. But these two followers on the road to to Emmaus Are hard nuts to crack. They hear the compelling narrative of Peter and the women, but they don't believe. To them, it might as well be the story of a flying Chinese monk. It's simply too fantastic to believe. So Jesus, I think, gently rebukes them. Look at verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart not to believe what the woman told you. You think they made that story up about the angels? You think Peter was pulling your leg? No, that's not at all how he rebukes them, is it? He doesn't rebuke them for failing to believe a testimony. He rebukes them for failing to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Do you see that in verse 25? Then it tells us he methodically works through Moses and the prophets. Basically, that's the whole Old Testament. That's shorthand for the whole Old Testament. And he expounds to them all the things therein that pointed to himself. Himself. Now just stop for a minute. A little thought experiment. Imagine your God. I don't know if I'm breaking some Commandment of God by asking you to imagine that, but hopefully not. Imagine you're going to rescue the world from its rebellion and brokenness and sin by sending your son to take mankind's penalty, to defeat sin, and then prove you've been con- you've conquered sin by rising from the dead. And I imagine that 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 resurrection is going to be your one great sign. A sign that nobody could plausibly deny. A sign that proves you want it to prove to everybody that you have in fact not just in some nice idea but in fact in reality done something about this broken sin sick world. A sign that proves that sinners can in fact be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with their creator. You want it to be Obvious. Now, now you know that the devil, along with certain rebellious people of mankind, will invent stories, stories of flying monks or karma, or spirit mothers that move in all of us. So what can you do to show that the hope and redemption you offer is unlike all the other counterfeit counterfeits? What can you do to show that this is a valid sign? I mean, certainly having a a cultural celebrity crucified by Romans and then rise from the dead, appearing to many, that's a pretty good start. But as we've seen, it's easy to explain away others' experiences. What happens to those who don't see this resurrected Christ? Well, I know, uh, maybe it's better to uh, appear personally to every single person in some sort of theophany, a vision of God, and to tell them, I am God, I exist, and I raised Jesus from the dead. That's probably not how God talks. <laughs> but we can doubt our own experiences. I mean, I think many of us would question even that. Was my mind just playing tricks on me? was so long in the past. We're so easily swayed. So here's another way you could do it. Hundreds of years before you sent your son, you could have your prophets make public prophecies and then have them written down for everyone to see. And these prophets would foretell the death and resurrection of that rescuer. Indeed, you could write an entire holy book, the Torah, the Old Testament, that makes no sense apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. By showing so explicitly that you were going to save and how you were going to save, then when someone came and did it, verified by eyewitnesses and changed lives with stories, then it's credible. It can be tested and evaluated by anyone and everyone. And that's exactly what God did. That's why Jesus doesn't convince these two by appearing to them as the resurrected Christ. He convinces these two by showing them that the promised Savior, the Christ, had to suffer and die and enter into His glory. He convinces them from the Scripture. that's why peter in the book of second second peter is the second that's why peter who could have talked about seeing the risen christ right he could have talked about seeing jesus transfigured with moses and elijah on the mountain but he says in second peter chapter 1 we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and we have something more sure The prophetic word. That's why the Apostle Paul, who saw a vision of the resurrected Christ, who elsewhere we learn was caught up in a vision where he was carried up to heaven, doesn't often tell those stories. Instead, his consistent practice is to reason from the scriptures showing that that Jesus had to be the Christ. He summarizes his message this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Do you see how God argues in the Bible? He says, look at the Old Testament. I told you everything that was going to happen, and now it's happening in Christ. And so when the physician Luke wants us to have certainty concerning the resurrection... He tells us this story. He tells us the story of how Jesus hid his identity and then showed his two disciples from the scriptures that Jesus had to die for their sins and be raised. In a certain sense, there was nothing supernatural about it. It was just plain reasoning from the Bible. God said it hundreds of years before it happened. Then it happened, just as God said it would. That's the proof. It's credible it gives certainty to our faith. Now, Luke doesn't tell us the exact content of Jesus' teaching. He doesn't have to. That's basically what the rest of the New Testament does. In fact, a little bit later in Luke 24, Jesus is meeting with the disciples, and he says the same thing to them. He shows them from the scriptures that this had to happen. He says, you go be witnesses of this. That was their job, to reason from the scriptures that it's the Christ. So, we know from the rest of the New Testament exactly what the content was. But to just give you a little bit of a sense of it, I want to give you three quick examples. First is an example from Genesis chapter 3. Right after man rebelled against God and sin and crud and brokenness and death broke in. Jesus at that time, or God at that time, says to Satan the serpent that a seed from the woman would be struck in the heel by the, the serpent but that that seed would crush the head or strike the head of the serpent. Now it's not, if you're, if you're just reading along in Genesis, it's not entirely clear what that means. You know, there's some sort of hope bound up in the woman's offspring but but then Jesus comes and Satan takes him to the cross where he thinks he's defeating him, striking his heel. That in that moment, Jesus deals the fatal blow to Satan, strikes his head, and it all makes sense. Or you can think of the elaborate sacrificial system that dominates so much of the Old Testament, a system that God instituted in order for sinful people to dwell with a holy God. But not just thinking about that system, but think about all the comments Moses makes about that system. You think about, he says, that ultimately it wasn't sufficient because it couldn't deal with the heart. You think about how he says that it was just the outworking of some heavenly pattern. And you're not sure exactly what to make of all these things. So is the sacrificial system where it's at or not? And then Jesus comes and is the ultimate perfect sacrifice for sin, truly satisfying God's just wrath against sin. And now you realize, yeah, that animal really didn't do anything for my sin. I needed the perfect Lamb of God to do that. His sacrifice is a once and for all sacrifice that can actually deal with my heart. All that was just a pattern for this. You see, Jesus had to die as our substitute to fulfill the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. Or a third example. You think of the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his his offspring would have a forever kingdom. And you see then how the prophets pick that theme up and talk about a forever kingdom reigned over by a Davidic king. You also know that the Davidic kings let us down and that they ultimately lose the throne entirely. Again, what do we make of that? Until Jesus comes and makes sense of it all. He's a descendant of David. He had, as, as that king, he had to be able to live forever. So he had to enter into his glory so that he could fulfill those Old Testament comments about a forever king and a kingdom. He had to die, sacrificial system, but he also had to reign forever. So in order to do that, he had to rise from the dead. You see, that's just three elements. The Old Testament simply doesn't make sense apart from Christ. I could go on and on with examples. Every fiber of the Old Testament comes together in Christ. Now there are certain elements of the Old Testament that make sense on their own apart from Christ. But when you look at all the elements together, the Old Testament doesn't make cohesive sense apart from Jesus. Now, God does make all sorts of very specific prophecies about the coming of Christ. You can think of Isaiah 53 and the, the very vivid description of, of his crucifixion there. There's lots of those. So it's not like, oh, I'm just going to put some vague stuff out there and it comes together in Christ. But I, I want you to think about if there's some sort of riddle. If I, if I give you a few clues about something. Um, people are buried in it. It's, it's a box. goes around the person. I like, go, oh, yeah, that's a coffin. But if I tell you a riddle where there's a little bit more mystery in the, in the various elements, those the man who made it doesn't want it. The man who buys it doesn't use it. The, ba- the man who uses it doesn't realize he needed it wait a second. And then you hear it's a coffin. It just clicks. It's a more compelling kind of way of leading you to this. That's what God does in the Old Testament. It's not just that he makes the predictions that are obvious, though he does do that because he wants to be, to be really clear, but he weaves together an entire mystery that only Jesus unlocks. And when you see Jesus, boom, it pops. And you see it. He makes sense of it all. That's how, Jesus, that's how God showed us that Jesus is the answer. Specifically, apart from Jesus' death for sin and result in resurrection, you can't make sense of the Old Testament. Jesus' death and resurrection is the key That unlocks the Old Testament. God wrote it down for us before it happened so that we could be sure. And that's just three examples in a few minutes of the kind of thing Jesus did with these two travelers over several hours. It's what Jesus did with those travelers. And it's what God is doing for you this morning so that your faith will rise. And we can imagine how the disciples must have responded when they heard this lesson. But Luke doesn't explicitly tell us. All he tells us is that when it appeared that Jesus was going to continue past Emmaus, the two followers plead with him to stay. Verse Verse 29 says they urged him strongly. Let's just say they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So he stayed with them. And then Jesus does something he'd done many times prior. He'd done it when feeding the 4,000. He'd done it when feeding the 5,000. He'd done it when when sharing the Last Supper with his disciples. He, He takes bread, blesses it, and breaks it. You see, the Bible presents a consistent picture of Jesus as the bread giver. The supplier of our needs. And it was at that moment that Jesus allowed them to recognize who he was. He'd reasoned with them from the scriptures, and now, now they get the personal experience. But just as soon as he shows himself to them, as soon as they realize, we see Jesus, that's who's been with us, he vanishes from their sight. Boom. No doubt at this moment, the disciples' eyes were like saucers. And they turn to one another and say, look with me at verse 32 at what they say. They say, did not our hearts burn when we realized it was Jesus? Again, that's not what they say. It's not the supernatural experience that they're left clamoring over. It was the natural experience of reasoning from the scriptures. It wasn't the uncloaked Jesus that left them spellbound. It was the cloaked Jesus who had helped them see the scriptures. Those whose hearts were slow to believe the prophets now believe the prophets and their hearts burn. And what do they do in response? They rise that very hour and return to Jerusalem. Now remember, just a little bit ago, they had urged that stranger on the road to stay with them at Emmaus because it was evening and the day was spent. But that doesn't matter to them now. They get up that very hour and make haste back to Jerusalem because they want to join the disciples. They want to tell them what had happened. Of course, Luke points out that Jesus hadn't had, it, had shown himself to the others already. In verse 34, the others give their report. Yeah, Jesus really is alive. Now, Cleopas and his companion wait patiently, sharing in the joy of these other disciples, but they have something else to share. So the, the first disciples, you see it in verse uh, 34, say, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. But after that report's given, what of Cleopas and his companions say? Then they told what had happened on the road and how he'd shown to them. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The first thing they tell isn't that they had seen Jesus. The first thing they tell is what happened on the road. And what a transformation for these two. The story began with them slinking away from Jerusalem in despair and trying to explain away facts. It ends with them running back to Jerusalem, hearts ablaze eager to show how all the facts make sense of the scriptures. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that there would be a transformation. But I also told you that how they change would be the real surprise. Jesus didn't try to change them by some personal encounter with the risen Christ though he does that in other situations. But in this case, he intentionally didn't change them that way. Instead, he changed them disguised as an ordinary person who simply could explain the scriptures. David Blaine is a famous uh, magician. He's been frozen in ice for 63 hours. Buried alive for seven days and survived. But he first made a name for himself by doing street magic. He had a team of people with hidden video cameras and he walk streets of big cities and just walk up to people and do magic on them. One of his stock acts was to predict the future. Something like, choose a number and write it down. And then he'd Pull out a card. That's the number you wrote down. (gasps) How did you know that? Well, Blaine's ability to predict the future was actually just a trick. It still shocked his little crowds because people simply can't do that. You can't know the future unless they're God. God can certainly do that, and he does. He creates an entire book, the most read book in the history of the world. And he writes it in such a way that its various themes and predictions only make sense when they come together when a certain key comes to unlock them all. While crowds can gape at David Blaine, all of us should marvel in reverence at God Almighty. Now, what do we do with our personal stories? If people can be gullible enough to believe that monks can fly, what do I do with the transformation I've seen in others? Or the experiences I've had with God? Or stories I've heard? I mean, perhaps the reason you're a Christian is because you saw someone's life change and they told you about how Jesus had done that. Or perhaps you're here this morning because you know somebody from Maple Avenue and you realize they live their life differently than how everyone else in the world does. What I want to say is that's actually really good. Just because there's counterfeits doesn't make the real fake. Our hearts have actually been changed. God's Spirit has actually worked in us, changing our very natures. But we can have certainty about those things. Not on the basis of subjective experience. We can have certainty because the scriptures so clearly point to a Christ who would not only suffer for our sins but who would rise to rescue us and usher in his perfect and eternal kingdom. If Jesus did not rise we should be like Cleopas and his companion at the beginning. We should be sad and despairing and trying to explain away all these different details. All this Christianity is a bunch of hooey if he didn't rise. It's all a grand charade, an opium for the masses. The story should be dismissed if Jesus did not, in fact rise. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, we should, like, we should be like Cleopas and his companion. At the end of the story, our hearts should burn with this reality. We should be eager to share our joy with others. Death doesn't have the last word. My sin does not have to cut me off from my Creator. The stories the stories are true. And if the stories are true, then we can rejoice exceedingly with joy inexplicable because Christ has won. Oh, how our hearts should burn. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I know that there are many here who in one shape or form are struggling with faith. And the way Jesus deals with Cleopas and his companion is so telling, and I pray that all who are feeling that would sense your loving, patient care entering into our thoughts, entering into our conversations, giving a book like Luke and a story like this for us, and then rebuking us and calling us to examine the scriptures, not to just take someone's word for it, but to examine the scriptures that you've laid out to see if this is really the case. May we be people who are willing to take our doubts to the scriptures and have them examined, so that our faith might rise, so we might have certainty. May all our faith strengthen, and God, as we see that this is not just a made-up tale, not a counterfeit religious experience, but the reality, may our hearts burn with joy as we sing of that great, glorious day, that happy.